You're listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast with your hosts, attorney Dan Mayer and licensed counselor, Melissa Westner. Dan is not your attorney and Melissa is not your therapist, but they're here to help you cross your T's and dot your I's as they talk about all the things you wish you had learned in grad school. And now here are your hosts. Hi there and welcome back. Joining us today is Amy Greensfelder. For Maryland practitioners, you may have heard of the Pro Bono Counseling Project. The Pro Bono Counseling Project is a nonprofit founded with the goal of connecting uninsured and underinsured low-income Marylanders with qualified mental health practitioners to provide therapy on a volunteer basis at no cost. And then to date, uh, the Pro Bono Counseling Project has helped over 30,000 individuals and families throughout the Maryland area connect with volunteer uh, therapists um, to help them um, obtain uh, mental health care um, that they usually uh, can't afford otherwise. Um, PBCP has over 800 volunteer clinicians all over the state, um, and they currently give out over 16,000 hours of time each year. Um, I should also note, just for full disclosure to those listening, that I am on the board of the Pro Bono Counseling Project, and I am as legal counsel. So it has been an honor and privilege to work with Pro Bono and to help continue um, it to continue to carry out its mission. So we wanted to let you know a little bit about Amy before we dive into the conversation. Amy is a licensed master social worker and a graduate of the University of Maryland Baltimore School of Social Work. And she previously served as the Maryland Department of Health's Refugee Mental Health Program Coordinator. Now, um, for me, this is exciting because um, obviously I know Amy. And um, even before we started the podcast, this was uh, Amy was a guest who I really wanted to have on, and um, I kept trying to figure out a way to do it. And just time wise, it wasn't working. But we finally got her here today. So, Amy, welcome. We're so glad to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. So, Amy, we're going to have a million questions for you in just a minute, but we wanted to preface the conversation with a little bit of information from the American Counseling Associ- Association and the NASW's Code of Ethics. So on the podcast, we are regularly talking about really important clinical, ethical, and legal topics that come up for mental health practitioners. And today we're going to be focusing on our ethical duty to provide pro bono work as mental health providers. So for anyone who is a counselor, if you read the American Counseling Association's Code of Ethics, in the introductory paragraph, it says... Counselors are encouraged to contribute to society by devoting a portion of their professional activities for a little or no financial return. And in the National Association of Social Workers Code of Ethics, they have a list of values. And the first value that they list is service. And under that value, the ethical principle says that social workers elevate service to others above self-interest. Social workers draw on their knowledge, values, and skills to help people in need and to address social problems. Social workers are encouraged to volunteer some portion of their professional skills with no expectation of significant financial return, pro bono service. So what I think is important to know about both of these in the ACA and NASW Code of Ethics is that both bits of information that I just read are listed in the very beginning 
of the code of ethics. And I think anytime we list something in the very beginning, it's because it's important and we want to make sure that someone is reading it. Um, And earlier I said that it's our ethical duty. The codes of ethics don't say that it's our duty, but they say that we are encouraged. And so because that's what your organization does, Amy, we thought that you might have some thoughts about that. So we're going to get started. I know Dan's going to start us off with some questions. Sure. You know, I I think the first question is, you know, given um, that um, because of the code of ethics, um, it encourages people to engage in pro bono work. How difficult do you find it for um, pro bono to find mental health practitioners who are willing to provide pro bono work? I was actually just talking with somebody about this yesterday. And one of the things that I think um, is really important is to think about this from an abundance model instead of a scarcity model. Uh, I'm often asked about this as to what kinds of incentives do we give and what are people's motivations? And really what we find is that many people enter the fields of mental health care because they want to give back and they're motivated by service, as Melissa just highlighted. And so uh, for many people, maybe they've started a private practice, they've joined a group practice, and they're looking for a way to give their service. But while those codes of ethics say that this is an important good, they don't really give a framework for how to do it. So pro bono counseling can step in and say, we've screened some clients, we've talked with them, we found out what their concerns are, they look like they'd be a good fit for what you're doing. So we do all that initial legwork, so to speak, so that then we can connect the right folks up to those folks who are looking to give of their time. So generally in a given month, we have 10 to 15 people join every single month. Uh, the organization. And so that really keeps us on track to be able to serve the growing need. And so so we, while um, we're always looking for more people to join, I think that it's really important to realize that many people are motivated to join and are looking for these opportunities. And we provide this, like I said, framework for doing it. Um, along the same lines, talking about just the organization itself, um, you know, I know for obviously from my work with pro bono counseling, um, some of the legal issues and compliance uh, challenges that pro bono faces. But I wondered if we could have you speak a little bit to our audience about some of that and what you find some of the challenges the organization faces um, are from a compliance and a legal standpoint. So one of the things that I think is really interesting to keep in mind is that we serve as a matchmaker. So the person who is providing the services maintains their private practice and all of their uh, regular duties and responsibilities as a mental health provider providing this person care. And so from that liability standpoint, the organization maintains um, liability insurance to protect the organization itself. And then, and also that there's a, a layer of protection for people who are working with us in some capacity. However, we we also ask that the providers also maintain their own liability insurance so that in that chance that something comes up of a liability concern, mm-hmm. um, all parties are um, are protected in that. And the other side of that is uh, their participation, the, the provider's participation with us doesn't in any way waive their duties to client confidentiality, HIPAA, all kinds of uh, duties and regulations. And something that just in my, Melissa referenced my experience with refugee mental health. I saw this on the refugee mental health side of of things as well as with pro bono. Sometimes when people are doing something that's a little bit outside of what they might normally do, maybe they're working with a new uh, uh, group of clients, a new uh, type of a situation than they're used to working with, or they're working with an organization with pro bono. Sometimes people, and I think this is just a very natural human reaction, 
you sometimes forget about some of those responsibilities, like the HIPAA, like the confidentiality, because it seems like you're doing something new now. And so we try to really, when, when we're having new clinicians join with us, we try to really uh, make sure that people understand you're still bound to all of those same kinds of, if you're using forms in your practice of informed mm-hmm. consent, all those things, we want to make sure you're continuing to do that just because it's a pro bono client doesn't mean that we don't need to be concerned about informed consent, about HIPAA, about confidentiality, about how we're going to exchange information with providers about the clients that they're seeing. So I think those are the, and I just think that that's a very natural human thing that, that happens with people like, oh, it's this new thing. And so um, sometimes there's a tendency to, to step aside, but those are, I think, the, the, the biggest things that come up. Yeah. And I think that that's important. I hadn't thought about that before from the perspective of what you do, but you might have providers who work at an agency and they want to volunteer with pro bono counseling project apart from their agency work, but all of the documents that they use for their regular line of work is through their agency and making sure that people know that you you have to have something in place if you're going to see people pro bono and apart from the agency where you're working. Yeah, yeah, because so often people's liability insurance comes with that agency. So that's yeah. one reason that we're so, you know, that's one of the first questions. Do you have your own liability insurance? And there's ways to get it. And there's ways to get it at an affordable rate that might be sort of surprising to folks. But uh, we do have folks in exactly those situations, like you said. And so what we do is we work with them to make sure they're set up with their liability insurance. And then we've actually been working with Dan on developing some universal forms. So folks in that situation yes. will have some vetted wow. forms that they'd be able to use for their service. Well, I, yeah, it's true. And and that's one of the things that's I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it comes up a lot, is you'll get questions from practitioners about intake forms and what are some of the the uh, kind of best practices they should be following. Um, you know, based just on my own experience working with practitioners and obviously working with you, you know, it, it seems like it's generally, like you said, it's generally all the same stuff you would normally do as a practitioner in your normal course of practice. It's just that you're taking on a client who is pro bono, essentially, correct? Exactly. Exactly. And so that's what we try to, when, when we have these conversations, that's what we talk about. You're, you're mm-hmm. treating them in the same way and you're, you're, you're holding the same regulations as if this person was paying you out of pocket, or obviously there's some things that might come up with insurance around your contracts. And so right. it's not quite the same thing as seeing somebody through insurance, but, but just considering it as though you would treat somebody who was, was paying only that fee mm-hmm. zero. And I think that helps people reframe that of like, okay, I still have to do my informed consent. I still have to do my HIPAA. I have to think of another one that comes up is missed appointments. How am I going to handle missed appointments? Often the practice is to have a fee for a missed appointment. Well, if you're seeing the person pro bono, uh, you're probably not going to collect a fee for a missed appointment. So just, but setting that standard, if we miss so many appointments without notice and there's not we haven't talked about it in advance. This is what we're going to do moving forward. So you've had that conversation at the out, outset with a paying client that might be a fee for missing the appointment with somebody who's pro bono. It's thinking of what that consequences is going to be so that everybody's clear from the beginning as to what the standard is. Yeah. And I think those forms will be so helpful. I'm thinking about, you know, if you're at an agency, someone else created those forms for you and said, here, do this. Okay. And if you have a group, if you are, you know, working in private practice, or if you're at a group practice, you have forms, but if you're the person who is going to be seeing someone voluntarily on your own, apart from any of those places, someone really might not have anything and really wanting to make sure that that is in place. So that's really interesting. Are there, um, do you find that there are certain um, issues or, or recurring issues or um, ethical uh, concerns that come up for the practitioners who work with pro bono? You know, are there, you know, a couple uh, 
items that people always seem to come to you with or, or seen them, you know, and I'm not just talking about intake people obviously, because I know those questions come up, but is there ones that are clearly endemic to um, this working with pro bono that you find that practitioners seem to seem to have that comes up on a curve? Um, sometimes it's things around um, insurance um, that that comes up. If the person has insurance, can we waive a copay? Can we waive a deductible? Is that allowable? What are you know what are what are those kinds of things? So sometimes th- those questions do come up uh, uh, frequently. And then the other, and we defer to the contract that that person has with with their insurance provider mm-hmm. because we are not equipped to help them to help them. <laughs> Good answer, Amy. Good answer. <laughs> Approved by pro bono counsel. Pro bono counseling projects. <laughs> Um, But the other ones that I think come up more are in that sort of ethical area around, well, I've been serving this person for a while and um, they seem to maybe have had a change in their economic situation. So either the person has revealed that they've started, not revealed, but has just shared that uh, they have started working a job now and they have some more income coming in. Maybe they share with their provider that they've received an inheritance of some sort or that they've started a new relationship with somebody who um, has some access to some funds or things like that. So there begins to be these questions of, well, maybe this person is able to pay now and I'm providing this service mm-hmm. pro bono. And so sometimes it comes from an outright statement from the, the client that maybe there's a different financial picture than when when they started. Or it can be more of a, well, the person came in with their nails done or this purse, this handbag, or they drove up to therapy and were dropped off by somebody in that kind of high-end car that, hey, me as a counselor, I can't afford that kind of car, but here are my pro bono clients driving around. And so sometimes those kinds of things come up that I think, are kind of skirt ethics, you know. I think that I think that's on that 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 edge of ethics of, well, can I ask this client about their financial picture if something's changed? If 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 I'm if they're able to pay now? If there's somebody else in their life with some money or this inheritance kinds of thing, can they access that for their counseling? What's what's the deal? And so often, uh, this is one of the interesting things about having an organization like pro bono counseling, either we coach the counselor around maybe asking some of these questions, or we talk to the counselor about maybe why they're thinking about some of these things and help them uh, kind of in a, in a clinical kind of way to consider why, why these things have, have come up all of a sudden. And then sometimes if there is a change in financial picture, we can then be the ones to have that conversation with the client to find out maybe there's a difference in insurance status, maybe they are able to pay so that then the clinician isn't put in that awkward um, situation of having to talk with this person about their ability to pay, which could could uh, uh, have an impact on that, that clinical process. So we're able to, to I don't want to say be a go-between, but sort of just mm-hmm. be a, a, a third party to kind of help navigate the situation, both from the client side. We can talk directly to the client. We can talk directly to the clinician and help navigate those things. But I do think that, um, you know, changes in financial status is one of the ones that, that, that comes up. So when, so when a client walks in with a big Louis Vuitton purse, that raises alarm bells, huh? <laughs> all, you know, and, and we try to talk about, you know, for you as a clinician, why is the, you know, like, is there something, and maybe it was a gift. Maybe, maybe it was something that was passed down in the family. You know, like there, there's all these different things. And then I think for a lot of folks, they get this sort of feeling of like, oh, you know, can they afford this? But they can afford that. But why can't they afford the council? You know, so I think it's just important to explore uh, because I do think um, as a society, this isn't just a single, I don't think our volunteer clinicians um, are any different than anybody else in society, but we have a tendency to want to really um, 
Uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, but just almost punish people in poverty. You know, we, we want to be very judgmental and and think of, and I think that there's sometimes very legitimate reasons for these things of maybe this was a gift of some sort or right. um, there's, there's reasons that people might have these things. And this is a well, very common conversation in, in counseling forums or in mental health forums. This is a really common question that comes up. So it's interesting to hear how you're seeing it on your end. Uh, another question I have is tomorrow in Maryland, um, for those people who are uh, listening who are in Maryland may know this, but for those who are not in Maryland, you, you probably don't know this, but tomorrow in Maryland, the age of consent law in Maryland is changing to um, basically allow minors um, 12 and older to be able to consent. Um, now, there's some discussion, obviously, about you know what's the extent that goes and, and things like that. However, um, I raised the, that that point only because um, in your experience, work with practitioners, has the age of consent come up? Is working with minors, have there been particular issues from a compliance or legal standpoint that's come up with minors that you found, you know, knowing that you guys are more of a clearinghouse, but you definitely, of course, get feedback from your practitioners. Um, and I know that as the, you know, d- you know, the director, um, you probably are aware of if, if questions like this come up. So what we've done today, until now, until tomorrow, it's been mm-hmm. 16 and over. And so right. I think that's probably the, the place that we've we've had the most around this. And generally mm-hmm. what we do is if a, if a young person who's in that 16 and over um, range, we want to talk directly to that that person about why they're seeking counselor because they are mm-hmm. a young adult. They're able to, right. they're able to have those conversations. And so we're, we, we want to talk both if the parents are available and are um, involved, we'll talk both to the parents as well as the the, the person who's in that 16 to 18 range. Uh, generally with folks 18 and above, we talk just directly to the individual seeking care. Uh, but if they're in that 16 to 18 range and the, the parents are involved in the picture and it's not causing them harm in some way to have their parents involved and they want their parents involved, we'll talk both with the parents and the child and, 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 and uh, go from there. But with that 12 and under, I think what's interesting is I think for many of us in Maryland, maybe we saw this come up in the spring and we are living in this pandemic time where so many things have happened between that bill being passed and signed into law and this October 1. It just seems like what I'm seeing is in the last week, a lot of chatter of like, oh my, this thing is happening. We should yeah. think about it. And I think many of us sort of had, I, I was just actually saying to Dan yesterday, a few days ago, we got an announcement of a, a webinar kind of training on it. And I said, my reaction on seeing this is, oh gosh, I know this wasn't until October. Oh, but it is almost October. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that uh, we probably weren't alone in that of people seeing it as something that was a bit off, far off mm-hmm. and are now having to, to consider it. And something that Dan and I have had conversations about has been... Um, the implementation versus what the content of the law is. So what right. we are hearing from providers or from just sort of folks interpreting the law is... Perhaps this was meant to be narrow and meant for uh, young people who are in situations where the parents aren't able to give consent or uh, LGBTQ plus uh, young people who are looking for counseling when the parents maybe aren't as supportive. So those kinds of situations, and it's not meant to be a a blanket, any 12-year-old and up, but that interpretation is a bit out different than what the law actually says. So I think that that's going to be some continued conversations about how folks are implementing uh, the, the law as it, as we kind of see it play out once it becomes implemented. And Dan, I'm real curious if you have additional thoughts on that. Well, or- it is, it's interesting. And I think it's a good thing. The law does say that it leaves it up to the individual practitioners um, 
clinical judgment essentially to to determine if a 12 year old um, or you know above is mature enough and able to consent. And that's really a big, big um, uh, kind of. Uh, emphasis, I think, right? Because the fact is, I always joke with practitioners when we've talked about this new changes. Well, a twelve-year-old can't even drive themselves to you know anywhere to, <laughs> to go to therapy. So somebody's got to know. Usually, typically, if a twelve-year-old's going to therapy, someone's parent somewhere is going to know. Especially if there's insurance or things being used like that, right? Because obviously, the parents will get an EOB. Um, and one of the considerations also is um, if a parent doesn't give consent. But a twelve-year-old does consent. Does the can the, the parents' therapy? Um, sorry, the insurance be charged, be billed. So um, I think it's really important. The, the 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 role of the clinician here is paramount. Is it's it's their judgment is really going to be a deciding factor here, um, and that's a good thing because obviously, from your perspective, you being the clinician, um, you can tell better than anyone else whether this is an individual uh, minor who has a maturity to you know give consent because consent is such a big thing i mean i think it's 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 easy to forget how big a thing it is you're actually consenting to the provision of mental health services and everything that goes with that and that's a big thing you know what's interesting to note about that change though is it does not change the law on the provision of medication and it also doesn't change the the law on the ability of a minor to waive their legal rights. Um, you know, so in Maryland, in many states, um, someone who is the age of majority, eighteen or older, can sign or enter into legal con you know contracts. Um, a minor could do it with parental consent. That has not changed. So if you're a practitioner and you have a 14-year-old who consents to mental health therapy, that doesn't mean they're they're able to waive their rights. So I have some clinicians who will say, well, I want to do outdoor therapy. Well, one of the things that I recommend is that you have an outdoor therapy waiver because if something happens, you know, you don't want to get sued if the person gets hit by a car, for example. But that minor may not be able to sign a consent waiver waiving their legal rights because they're not 18. So there are a lot of practical things that's still going to have to be worked out. And, you know, as with any change in the law, you know that I think in the next couple of years, we're going to see kind of additional um, decisions be made. Likely things are going to come up and make it make its way to the courts. Um, there may be additional changes to the law, um, but it'll be interesting to see what happens for sure. Um, yeah. And, yeah, go ahead, Melissa. Okay. Well, I was just going to ask Amy for people who have been sitting on the fence about whether or not to provide pro bono work. I'm wondering if you would speak to um, some of the needs that pro bono counseling project sees when they're answering these intake calls, if you can speak to the need in the community for this type of work, or if you can speak to the value of this work for the people who are receiving these services. Yeah. So the need is great. The need is really, really great. I was telling uh, Melissa and Dan, I'm in my office today as we're recording. And I said, oh, I have to my phone on do not disturb because it beeps every time uh, we get a, a new client calling in requesting care. And if we uh, you wouldn't have been able to hear the audio with as many beeps as you'd be, be hearing uh, based on the, the needs. Uh, we have really seen a huge increase, especially since uh, I, would, I would really peg around like June of this year uh, throughout the pandemic. Uh, our numbers of requests have been kind of all over the place. I think many of us were at various points during the pandemic, um, maybe uh, 
definitely feeling the emotional impacts, but maybe not be not in a place to really reach out for that help. But uh, since this summer, we have really seen the the needs uh, increase and in the, the numbers of people calling us and seeking care. The things that we hear are, um, I think, probably very similar to what people are hearing in private practice. Uh, depression and anxiety continue to be um, at the top of the needs list. One of the things we've seen through the pandemic is grief. So people who um, especially have experienced some sort of grief in the past, all of the impact of the the current losses and just all of the talk of death and loss in the pandemic, I think for a lot of people has brought up some things from the past. So people talking about both current grief that they've experienced during the pandemic, but also how it maybe is impacting things that the that, that maybe they thought happened in the past and, and maybe they had moved beyond, but it's bringing up for them again. Post-traumatic stress disorder and the impacts mm. of trauma uh, continue to be high. Race-based trauma. Uh, and we're, what we really saw is with the increased movement for racial justice, many more people wanting to talk about how uh, the movements for, for, for um, racial justice have really brought up incidents of race-based trauma that they continue to experience or and or have experienced throughout their lifetime. And so people uh, really using this as an opportunity to talk about things that maybe they they haven't really said out loud for for a long time. And with that, we're also seeing a greater uh, proactive identification of people wanting to uh, meet with a therapist who shares a racial, cultural, or ethnic background as themselves. We have continually asked people, that's been part of our process for for, for many years now, to say, what are you looking for in a therapist in terms of approach? Do you have um, interest in being matched with somebody who shares your race, uh, gender, religious Outlook, et cetera. And so we 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 ask all these these questions. And often in the past we were getting, you know, just somebody who can be who can help me. And now I think with the 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 the, the renewed movement for racial justice, people are saying, you know, I'm an African American woman and I really want to speak to an African American woman therapist. And so that's we've we've seen just so many more requests of that that nature coming through. So that's on the need side. And then the other side has been the therapists. And so People, what we're finding is that people are really generous and wanting to give back and recognizing that need and recognizing that um, the needs are so great. And many people do struggle with being able to afford care and still do not have access to mental health care and want to give back. And in return, what we do is we offer free continuing education. So your listening audience all knows that uh, continuing education is so vital to renewing your license and keeping up with trends in the field and making sure you can best serve your clients. And we offer... um, 40 to 60 hours of free continuing education every year uh, to the providers who participate with us. So you can get all of your continuing education without having Intent. to pay. Intent. <laughs> oh my God. I, I, you can, can enroll just... at www.probonocounseling.org if you're interested. <laughs> I, I, I just tell you as an attorney who just has to do you know, continuing legal education too, like that is such a valuable um opportunity to be able to get free, you know, hours up to like 60 hours. It's that's, that's awesome. And that's really, um, the question that came across my mind was our the comment, I think actually is, it's interesting because you, you, you emphasize something that I thought was important, which is that, you know, I feel like anytime there's a, 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 a large disruption to people's sense of normalcy, um, it often brings up a, a a large amount of reoccurring or underlying um, issues or concerns they've always had. And, you know, I know mental health practices throughout the area right now here are all have waiting lists. So I'm not entirely surprised that you've had the kind of um, response you've had or need for the services, because I just feel like we're living in such, you know, I don't want to say crazy times, but just such 
you know, I guess the word is interesting times, you know, not necessarily a good way. Interesting. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but to that I, point I, of the yeah, waiting yeah. list, oh, one. Um, no, no, please, maybe this no. is the question you're going to ask. No, 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 but, no please. Um, I want to hear what you're saying. Please. I was speaking to um, a friend who is in the clinician community, and I made an offhand comment about um, the need so great right now. Private practice providers, the ones that I know and what I'm hearing are all booked. Mm -hmm. I sometimes have to return a call from one of our providers and get a voicemail that says I'm not accepting new clients, but people continue to enroll with us and are accepting new clients. And I was like, I, I I was just like, I I was almost just like flummoxed by it and just sharing my, like, I I don't understand, but whatever it is, I'm glad that people are being so generous. And she shared with me, and I think this is really interesting that because there has been such a, a great need and so many Many of the people um, going through private practice are paying either out of pocket or through insurance. Many of the providers are then opening a slot up for pro bono because they're seeing that they have these streams of income coming in. So then they feel the comfort to be able to open up these, these additional slots. And when she shared it with me from that perspective, I was like, oh, that makes total sense. Because so often, I mean, the listening audience is the clinician audience. And so you know how it is. You're trying to uh, make sure that you're getting enough income to meet your needs in. And if you mm-hmm. say, well, if I, if I do this slot pro bono, am I going to be passing up a paying client, which is obviously we want to make sure everybody's getting their bread on the table and getting their rent paid and, and all of those mm-hmm. things. But it, I just, I just thought it was an, a, it, it helped shift the way that I was thinking about it. Again, I mentioned at the beginning, I really try to think of things from an abundance instead of a scarcity. But when you mm-hmm. hear about all these waiting lists, it's hard to stay away from that, that scarcity mentality. So Well, and I was just thinking that as well, right? It brings it back full circle to what you were saying in the beginning is that even being able to feel comfortable offering pro bono services, it's coming from that place of abundance. I can do this now mm-hmm. because I feel comfortable. Yeah, I also think one of the interesting developments, you know, because I remember prior to pandemic, you know, almost nobody did teletherapy. You know, it was there, but there really wasn't a push to do it. And then, of course, the pandemic happened and everyone did it. And one of the things I've had this conversation over and over and over again with a lot of my clients, you know, Delta's kind of put a kink in a little bit in this, but um, I still think this is accurate, is that a lot of practices are starting to reopen their offices and just figure out protocols and things to do. And what I often point out to my practitioners is what this means is this is a great opportunity for you because you now can expand your client base without having to do anything. Right, because you're going to automatically. And I found this from talking to multiple practices that that they've seen to have somewhere around forty percent of their clients um, or more will tell them we're not coming in the office, we're sick into teletherapy. So I'm like, well, all those clients who were coming in prior now are not coming to your office. You now have extra space, so it offers you an opportunity to expand their client base. And I think that that and you offers client um, practitioners also a unique opportunity if they want to do pro bono because now it means you can take on that extra pro bono case. It's not going to take away from your other caseload. In fact, it'll probably just, you're still going to have um, the ability to do all the extra caseload. So I think it's an interesting development in, in, in currently that I was unforeseen. I, I, I don't think anyone could really foresee the changes that teletherapy was going to have on the industry. Yeah. And I think um, that's a really good point about the teletherapy. Like one of the things I think about is if say somebody wants to do one person that suits you, one person who's, who's, 
outside of their normal hours, even mm-hmm. it's not like you have to drive somewhere and find some meeting space and, and meet up with, with somebody. It, it right. makes it so much simpler in terms of just all those logistics to just, okay, I, I, I'm, I could sign on for an hour, one evening a week to, to see one person, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I think it just, right. it opens up those opportunities. And then the other thing you mentioned too, which I think is really important is pro bono therapy can also generate more referrals because maybe this person who you're seeing right now isn't in that place where they're able to pay, but their friends and family might be, and they might say, oh, wow, I had a really great experience with this person. We've heard from so many providers over the years who were starting a new practice, which I know that's a situation that your your podcast really Mm -hmm. catches folks who are starting new private practices. And there's that build-up phrase where you're, you're getting your initial clients and, um, and doing some of having pro bono clients for some of your initial clients can then generate those referrals for that ongoing um, therapy from folks who are in that position of either being able to private pay or use insurance. So it's just, a, I think that that's a, uh, an aspect that again might not be really uh, obvious on the outset of it, but mm-hmm. that, that, that you can generate more referrals from doing pro bono care. And that's an interesting point, especially because I'm a transplant in Baltimore, right? But my wife is is here from Baltimore and she'll tell you that the the concept of smaltimore, as we say it in this area, is absolutely true where everybody mm-hmm. knows everybody. So what I found, even just for my own practice and in, in law, um, is that word of mouth here in Baltimore and, and Maryland goes a long way. So I, I think that's a really great point. Um, I want to switch gears just a slightly a tad and just ask you a question because you'd mentioned this um, a couple of times now while we're talking with you. Um, and that is, uh, how do you find that your training um, as a social worker helps you in your position now as an executive director of an organization like Pro Bono? Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you asked that. I was trained as a macro social worker. And so um, I was telling Melissa and Dan before we started recording, I... I'm not a clinician. I am not a counselor. I do mm-hmm. macro social work. That means program mm-hmm. management, program design. And one thing that I, I really love about social work is it teaches you to see a really big picture. And you're looking at all the moving pieces and thinking of how all the different pieces impact one another and thinking about with pro bono counseling, not only is our goal and our mission, as Melissa so uh, succinctly said at the beginning, matching folks to volunteer therapists, we also, our vision is quality mental health care for all. So if we're really living that vision, we're taking all this information we're getting from folks who are struggling to access mental health care and saying there's something wrong with the system. And we need to Mm -hmm. advocate for some change within the system so that everybody has access to mental health care. And we aren't reliant on, while we appreciate the the, the goodness of people's hearts and and the volunteer service, I I fervently believe that there's a better way to get people mental health care so that all people are getting mental health care and we're not reliant on folks to volunteer their time. And so it's finding those um, issues within the system that are leading to folks still having difficulty accessing care. And we can use that data and that information we collect through all of this to say, these are what the issues with the system are. And again, because we have this uh, network of over 800 licensed providers, we also sometimes find some of those issues. Uh, some things have come up around the licensing boards and issues of impacting clinicians. We, again, can gather that information and say, we have 800 folks in private practice that we're working with and everybody's experiencing this issue right now. How can we use that information to advocate for the, the provider side as well? So I think that's, as a social worker, that I, to, to be trained in that way, to see things in that where are the holes in the system? How can we make it all work together better for better outcomes for all of us? I think has just has, has really impacted my ability to be successful in this role. It's interesting because I think you touched on something that's that's just a fundamental issue in this country. It's one of the reasons why 
healthcare, uh, mental health practices have waiting lists. Um, is that we just in this country just don't do a good enough job, um, you know, handling mental health and funding it and providing resources. And I think that's where you know this organization is so great and one of the roles why it's so critical, you know, in the Maryland area for the services it provides. Yeah. And so every year, about 3,000 people are receiving mental health counseling through the network of volunteers. And I've done the math before. When you look at, uh, out of uh, Kaiser has really great statistics around who's uninsured and underinsured. So if you look at the statistics of how many people in Maryland are uninsured or underinsured, if you look at the prevalence of depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, grief, uh, life transitions, those kinds of things that people are seeking counseling for, it's really should be somewhere between like 80 and 120,000 Marylanders mm. would be in need of pro bono counseling every year. So that's when I say that um, a, a network of volunteers is ph- phenomenal. And I think that we're really making an impact in people's lives. But we really need to, if we want to impact that 80 to 120,000 people who are not getting mental health care, um, because we know if people aren't getting it through us, the folks that we're serving for talk therapy, there really is not many other low cost uh, options to, to, to go to. So that means that that many people are still not getting care. And so that's one reason that it's important for folks to volunteer, but also another reason to, as Dan says, to look at the system and look at where those gaps are to make sure that everybody mm-hmm. has access to care. Yeah. Uh, and so if you are a Maryland-based provider, we want to encourage you to be thinking about your own involvement with pro bono work. And also, if you are located in Maryland, to help spread the word about the work that Pro Bono Counseling Project does. So that way, people who are in need of services and believe that they can't afford them, that they know about services that are available. So Amy, we always want to know if people are interested in getting in touch with you or if they're interested in getting in touch with Pro Bono Counseling Project or learning more about Pro Bono, how can they get in touch with you? How can they get in touch with the Pro Bono Counseling Project? Yeah, so if they want to get in touch with the organization, really the best way is our website. That's Pro Bono Counseling, all one word, P-R-O-B-O-N-O-C-O-U-N-S-E-L-I-N-G.org. And uh, there's information there on getting involved as a volunteer, information there about donating, and there's a contact us form, which is the best way to get in, in touch to make sure that uh, your, your message is getting to the right person. I also invite folks, I, I'm available for my, my email is amy, A-M-Y, at probonocounseling.org. So you could email me directly, but the, count, the contact us form on the website is also uh, just as easy to, to get in touch. Uh, and, and another thing I wanted to add about volunteering with us, another way, you might already be doing pro bono service in your practice. We want to amplify that work. And so if you provide us with some basic information, uh, we can uh, record that about the clients you're seeing and how many hours you're donating. And that too gets you access to the free continuing education because really our goal is to document. I mean, our goal is to increase access to mental health care, but by documenting all the service being done, it really helps us paint that picture of of all of the service that the that, that, that providers are doing in Maryland. Yeah. And if I can just add one more thing, Amy, that just came to my mind. So our office as well. And I think this is a common question that comes up when in, for people who are in private practice and group practice, people are often asking, do you have a sliding fee scale? Does that exist? Um, and then providers are like, Ooh, I don't know. How do I create a sliding fee scale? And it's just this kind of odd place for people to be in. And at my office, one of the things that we have decided to do is that 
for the providers who want to be engaged in some type of uh, pro bono work that we partner with a local organization like Pro Bono Counseling Project. So that way we have a more formal plan in place besides developing our own um, sliding fee scale or something like that, but to partner with a local organization who already does this work. So for anyone else who's like, I don't know about this whole sliding fee scale thing, but I want to be able to serve the needs of people who need mental health treatment. Um, this is another solution. Instead of mm-hmm. recreating the wheel, you can partner with people who are already doing this. So you don't have to be like, well, how do I determine their need and blah, blah, blah. Um, you can partner with people uh, who are already doing this. And that, at least for me, I found that to be a simpler solution and a little bit more objective instead of us having to figure all of that out on our own. Lisa, but I always give the example of like, it creates the situation where you're negotiating with the person yeah. before you've even decided if they're going to be a good fit for your practice. So you've negotiated the sliding scale and then you get a couple sessions in and maybe it turns out this, you know, this just is outside of your scope, what they're coming to you with. It's not a good fit, but you've negotiated and it's just kind of, it can create, and I hate to use this word, right. ickiness on both yeah. sides where people are like, mm-hmm. oh, what do I do now? And so- sure. We can have in in those situations if it's not a good match. There's another provider that we'll refer the person on to, and it just it just takes that whole piece out of it, um, so that you're not it doesn't become a negotiation. It's a I've accepted this referral because this is part of my professional responsibility, and I can take pride in in this work that I'm doing. Yeah, takes away all that ick. <laughs> well, Amy, I really, really, really want to thank you for joining us today. Um, this is. This is awesome to hear about this. Um, we're so grateful for you to come on. Um, as always, um, to everyone who's listening, we would say that um, if you want more information, you can always go on our web our, our webpage and come to our Facebook page. Please submit us your questions, your feedback, comments, um, anything like that where we want to hear from you. Um, other than that, we are grateful for you listening and we will talk to you all soon. Take care and be well. Thank you for listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Be sure to visit protectingyourpractice.com to connect with us, continue the conversation, and access additional information. As a reminder, the information on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their own attorney or paid consultant for all decisions regarding their own practice.